you want to open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8, your app on your phone or whatever, follow along in the outline, I guess. Uh, it might be hard to follow because I'm not used to doing this, as you're all well aware. And, and uh, I got teased on the, about how I enunciate certain things. So my southern boy is going to come out, leak out a little bit, and I hope that you won't mind that. We're going to look at Romans 8, and I just wanted to say something about Romans 8. It's Paul's, this has been called Paul's magnum opus, and what that means is his theological masterpiece. He, he systematically lays out the situations of the world where you can see the fallenness of man and, and how the conviction of God works and how we struggle against the spirit and the flesh and the the law and the spirit and all those different things. And he comes up to the point, and it's probably what I like to think of, the dividing point, the grace point uh, in Romans here, it's, although it's all throughout it. But this stuff really means a lot to me. And uh, I hope that I can encourage you in the times of doubt Whenever the world's beating up on you, or it seems like everything's going against you, that you won't lose hope, you won't lose faith, that you'll stay steadfast and stand firm on the promises of God that we're going to look at right here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, it's a very, very, uh, I, I find it very intriguing. It's, it's the Scriptures that mean a lot to me, and uh, I'm hoping that they will... Demonstrate to you the hows and whys of your redemption in order for you to be established firmly in your faith. Now, one thing I want to say about Romans is it is a letter. It's a letter written to a church. You know, people like to think that everybody goes out and buys them a Bible at Walmart and reads it and understands. And that's not the case. Unbelievers don't read the Bible, do they? Believers are the only ones who read the Bible. So this is a letter written to churches and just like when you get a letter, I don't know if they even send them anymore. I haven't got one in a long time. Well, you've not got it divided up by chapter and verse. So really to grasp theologically what's being said, it's best to just read it like you would a letter from home or something like that. Because you'll, the thought will flow together and bridge the gaps that seem to be apparent. Which we're going to look at one here in verse 1 of Romans. A verse that you're very familiar with. And it's quoted quite a bit and left in place just as it is. It's never expounded upon the whys and the hows of why this verse is true. Therefore, I want to stop right there a minute. The word therefore at the first of a chapter is pretty odd, isn't it? It really is because it implies that Paul is fixing to make a summation of something that he just spoke about. And if you look at chapter 7, you get the idea of what he's talking about when he gets to this portion of the, of the scriptures. And in chapter 7, as you know, you see Paul talking about the struggle between the flesh, fallen flesh and the spirit of God. And there is a tug of war that goes on there. There's one, if, it, if it's not going on there, I'd say you need to, to examine yourselves and, and find out why, but... There's that struggle, and Paul comes in and he says, Oh, the things that I shouldn't do, those I find myself doing, and that which I ought not to do, that I do, and so on and so forth. I said that wrong, I already know, but, but then he gets to the, he gets to the 
end of that passage, so wretched creature that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he has given us the victory over sin and death and the body. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, another thing I want you to get a hold of that is you hear about the condemnation part, but I want you to understand who it's speaking about. For those who, those who, well, we're going to look at, see a lot of those who's here as we read on through this passage of Scripture. And it's important to, to draw the conclusion of who the those who are. <laughs> yeah, that was real cute, wasn't it? <laughs> so anyway, let's go down to verse 28. And that's another familiar passage. You hear that one spouted off on some of them old boys on TV. They'll make mention of this one when they're trying to get you to send that seed check for $1,000. But they're using it out of its context to try to get that from you. So look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And they'll, they'll take that and they'll go elsewhere with it. But what's being said there is that God's got his hands on everything in your life. For purposes for why you are called. His purpose and it's his will in the calling that you have received. So, and there's, hey, you notice in the middle there, there's those those two words. Those who. Those who love God. That's kind of an important element. Those that are in Christ in verse 1. Those who love God in verse 28. And then we go on to verse 29, for those whom, a little variation on that, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's go back to verse 29. I think it's important to get a good grasp of, of the language being used here. The word foreknew implies something done before or someone known before. Beforehand, in other words. And we know that the word knew in the Bible Nine times out of ten, it means an intimate knowledge of somebody. You know, Abraham knew Sarah, and she conceived and had a child, right? That's the way we understand it, the word yada in, in the Hebrew. And, but in the Greek, it means basically in this context, the very same thing, an intimate knowledge of who we are, and it's not the way that we think. You hear people say things like, well, God looked down the hallways of time, and saw who would choose him. And that's how he based his salvation on it. That's not what's being said here. In fact, that's speculation. It won't, it won't hold up in a court of law. It'll get objected. Because they're reading into the text something that's not there. So for new here, if you look it up, and you may, means intimate knowledge. We're going to touch on that a little bit more. But it's notice the past tense. It's something... That was done beforehand, wasn't it? That's an important element too, because you're going to notice through all these other points of this golden chain that we're speaking of, 
each link has that kind of an implication on it. It has a past tense implication of things that were done beforehand. So those he foreknew. People known by God before they were born and given their specific purpose before birth. I can prove that with a trip back to the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 1. Now you're probably familiar with this verse as well because you see it at abortion protests and things like that. They'll, people hold up signs that say Bible verses and this will be one of them that you'll see there. Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before I, before you were born, I consecrated you and have appointed you a prophet of the nations. I'm sorry, I had to look back there because I, I have that verse memorized in the King James Version. And I didn't want to use that one today. So he says that he's consecrated him before he was even born. He was formed in the womb and he was known of God. All the arguments that we put forth and stuff are always false on deaf ears when God's got his hand upon you because you will do what he did. You can ask Jonah. There's a good book to see a man surrendering to the will of God who first resisted, but he did. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. i got to dig out my notes here. Verse. Ephesians 4 and 5. Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Can you imagine that? Imagine God knowing you before the foundation of the world. It gets, it gets crazier than that. And how does he know us? Well, that we would be holy and blameless. I used to understand that as something that we had to do. No, it's what God's going to do for us. We would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. This is another episode, another example of God working redemptively for us before we even know he's working on us. Isn't that right? Another concept that... Well, no, let's go on with this one. Let's go to David here, if I can find it. I think my clippy thing about fell off. There it is. So, in Psalms 139, King David writing this, and he has the revelation of how much God's been involved in his life all along. You remember, you hear those stories about King David, takes on the giant and kills him as a young boy, you know, avoids Saul and becomes the greatest king Israel ever had in these things. And all these things were promised to him by God. And he went against that giant because he knew God said he was going to be king. He was going to be king. And that's all there was to it. What God decrees comes to pass. So in Psalms 139, the first 16 verses, and I'll read to you. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. There's that concept again, isn't it? Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before 
and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when it was as yet there was not one of them. Now we're talking about a guy that realizes absolutely how much God's had his hand on him. Well, is that just for David and Jeremiah? Or is that, is that for everybody that the Lord gives salvation to? Is that for everybody that the Lord shines his light upon? Well, I would say it's for those whom are in Christ. It's for those who love God. It's for everyone that the Lord puts his hand on and changes their life. <clears throat> That's the wrong page, Dave. <laughs> I did that last time too, so. All right. Predestined. You saw that. Those whom he foreknew, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. Now think about that. That's something that you can't do. You and I can't do that. It requires someone else. It requires a power outside of ourselves. It requires a righteousness apart from that. A plan, this is a planned future determined by God that he brings to pass. We've seen that in Ephesians 1, the foundation of the world that he's been planning this for us. Think about Ryan. I didn't say this earlier, but Ryan's in uh, Florida. He's on his way back probably now, but he was in Florida at a theology conference in Orlando. And uh, he had to plan his trip. He had to make the arrangements. He had to do... You know, get a car rented. He had to get a motel rented. He had to uh, get places to eat and so on and so forth and all those things so that he would arrive at his destination and be able to function, right? So it's no different than what God does for us. He's planned things out. And somehow, some way, everything that we do and everything we encounter and everything that we see and hear is all working together towards that one end. That conforming to Christ Jesus for those of us who know the Lord. So Ryan had to do it. Now we know that God does it. Also notice the strong implications in the word predestined. There's that past tense stuff again, isn't it? Pre means before as we understand. And ED means that it happened. He predestined. By role decree, God has made the statement. We will be conformed to the image of the Son. A predetermined destiny 
given to us from God. That's why the verse like Philippians 1, 6 ought to be on every wall of our house. Every time you have doubts, every time you struggle with something, every time it looks like, where, where's God at in all this? Just so we can remember that the Lord, in Philippians 1, 6, or Paul speaking actually, says that he hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we can rest assured and bank upon the promises of God in that instance and in that theme of his magnificent salvation brought about by Christ Jesus who purchased our redemption on the cross. We will arrive at completion. Well, he says something a little odd here too. He says, everyone predestined, he calls. That implies that nobody knew it up to that point, wouldn't you say? No one knew the Lord. I think about the whole experience of rebirth and how mine came about. And it happened in such a way that I absolutely knew there was nothing I did to encourage it. Nothing I did by choosing. In fact, I was the furthest away from God I could ever be. I did believe that there was a God. Most people do. But intimately, intimate knowledge happened of this time of my conversion. It was a time when my sin became very evident to me. Let me put it that way. And I understood at that point that there was not nothing I could do to alleviate that burden of guilt. It was there, and it weighed on me for three days and three nights. I didn't go to work. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I didn't do nothing. I tried to read the Bible at first, and I said, Lord, how how am I going to understand all this if you don't reveal it to me? And it kind of took the blinders off. But the problem where was I got more conviction and more conviction, and it got to be a desperate situation. And if I could have crawled into a hole, somewhere out in the woods and covered myself up to hide from him, I would have did it. (laughs) It was that heavy. Well, it has to be that way. We have to see that he is holy and we are not. And within that, we can take hold of the concept of that it is by grace that he saves people, that he saves us for being his own because no one deserves it. We all deserve judgment. We can call her, well, it's not fair that God saves some and he doesn't save others if this is true. But who are we to question him? You can see that in the next chapter of Romans. That portion is discussed, but we're not going to go there today. So we are called, and again, it's a past tense phrase. That's how God overcomes our will. It's with an effectual calling. He changes us from within. You can find that kind of language in the Old Testament with the prophets. Even Ezekiel 36. He talked, God talks to Ezekiel says, the day's coming when I will, always watch the I wills when God's speaking. I will take away the heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh. I will forget their sins. I will change them. It's basically what he's saying. That's very good news. Because we can't do that on our own at all. John 3, 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that he 
has to be born again to be able to see the kingdom of God. You can't see it unless it's revealed to you. You have to have. You hear Jesus say it a lot of times in the Gospels. He that have eyes to see and ears to hear. So let them hear and see. That's what happens in the rebirth experience. That's what happens whenever the Lord reaches in there and changes our hearts. He's, he's given us eyes to see the reality of our own sin. And the reality of the gift of salvation that is made evident and given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can ever believe those things. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Regeneration is ears to hear, eyes to see. You know, Jesus said in another way in John six forty four, and I broke down this verse kind of like you used to do in English class. I, I didn't do well in English, as you can tell, but uh, I did have a little girl there. It was kind of sweet on me. I could get, talk her into helping me with the stuff usually, but... Uh, John six forty four, and that's broken down this way. Jesus is talking to the crowds that had surrounded him on the mount. He preached, and remember they got the bread and the fish, and, and everybody got something to eat that day. And they were still following him, and he turned around and he told them, You can't follow me unless it's given to you. Look at the verse. No one can come after me unless... The Father draws them. And you'll remember later on the chapter, the crowds turned around and left, didn't they? He said it to them again, and they all turned around and walked off. Well, why? Didn't they eat the fish? Didn't they, didn't they see the miracles? Hadn't, didn't they come out because Jesus done healings and done all these special things? But yet, they turned away. Well, it wasn't because it was supper time and they needed to go home or anything like that. It's because they did not have the ability. Now, let's break this down. No one... That is a universal negative. That means no, no one means everyone. No one can come to me. It is without exception and all inclusive. No one can. That means they don't have the ability to. You remember in school, whenever you needed to sharpen your pencil and you'd say, teacher, can I sharpen my pencil? And they would usually say something along the lines of, well, I'm sure you can, but may you. So there's a very distinct thing there that's being taught to us in that statement of the teacher that can has to do with ability, doesn't it? But may has to do with permission. Jesus is saying, no one can come to me, has the ability to come to me, but then he gives you a necessary condition, a prerequisite in the word, unless, unless something's got to happen to give them the ability to come to Jesus to understand him. And that is the father draws them. This is the prerequisite that the Lord put into place. So you can see right away. Well, you also know that, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the father except through me. And then he says right here, no one can come to me unless they're drawn by the father. That's kind of a catch-22. How, how does it happen? Again, the regeneration from the Holy Spirit. It is the gift of God given to us. The Father draws them. The word for drawing, you know, you see that, that. That means literally to drag nearly. But it's not kicking and streaming like you think. 
They draws them with the conviction of the Spirit. I mean, it for me, again, it was a concept that there was nothing I could do. And I surrendered to the Lord. I just said, Lord, if I'm going to, I can't do it. I can't find the way out of this. I was looking for loopholes in the Scripture, not finding them. And I finally just gave up, exhausted, and said, Lord, if I'm going to be saved, it's going to have to be you do it. Boom. The burden lifted. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, that's better. I went right to sleep finally. It was a wonderful experience, a very peaceful slumber I fell into. And, of course, you know, later I woke up, man, I wish I would done that three days ago, you know. So <laughs> it, it went like that. So Jesus says, when these conditions are met, he says, I will raise them up on the last day. It's going to happen. He's going to make it happen. Now, those that he called, the scripture said, verse 30, those he called, he also justified. See, it's not enough just to have Jesus to forgive our sins. That just makes us not guilty of sin. To stand before God in his holiness, we have to be righteous. And that's what justified comes into. It's a time that God sees us as righteousness. Now, there's a, a thing called imputation. In this case, double imputation that theologians talk about. And it has to do with righteousness imputation. Righteousness imputed to us. And our sin, as the scripture says, is imputed to Jesus. It's an exchange that's made on the cross that gives us the ability to stand holy and blameless before God on that last day. We will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus will be there to stand alongside of us. So it's a done deal. Has that past tense ED on the end of it. And if you need reference for this, it's Romans 3.26. Talks about uh, the justification portion of our salvation. And it... It says something kind of odd that affected a guy named Martin Luther, who was the founder of the Lutheran Church, I guess. And he realized at that time that God was both the justifier and just at the same time in the death of Jesus on the cross. So he could give all that sin, all that wickedness, put it on Jesus. And we see that demonstrated in the bread we take communion. That's the represents the wrath of God. Do us put on Jesus that beating that He took. Then He bled out all that blood for the covenant, sake of a covenant that God's created through this to establish us and uh, redeem us from our sins. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ died and paid the penalty for the sins of the elect. And rose for our justification. Just the just for the unjust. Now Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Speaks of this being a divine gift. That God gives to us. And if you're familiar with the passage. You know that it says by grace. You're saved through faith. But the emphasis here. Is that the faith that doesn't belong to us. By grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works. All that falls in the, in the 
into where it belongs in the thought of the whole concept of salvation by grace alone, sovereign grace, election and all that, uh, it fits. It fits. Double imputation. Justified in order to become sanctified with what's called an alien righteousness, the early theologians would say, a righteousness outside of ourselves, namely that of Christ himself. Then that he justified, the scripture goes on to say in Romans, he glorified. Now we know that God did all creation for his own glory. It's for him. It's what he wants it to do. It's to be what he wants it to be. Here, it says he glorified us. This has to do with the sanctification. This has to do with the completion that is coming in our Lord Christ Jesus. On that final day, we will be like him. That's what Paul was talking about, said in the twinkling of an eye. We won't all sleep, but we will be changed. The twinkling of an eye, that last trumpet blast, the world's going to get to see us changed. They're going to see the glory of Jesus upon us. That's what's guaranteed to us in this passage of Scripture right here. We are honored by the Father because of the completion of our sanctification at that point. Till the day of Jesus Christ, you see. And we will stand holy before him. And we'll be that group that's singing up there as he conquers the rest of the planet for his glory's sake. Being complete, we honor Jesus Christ with our obedience. That's our part now. That's what we do now is we live and take up our cross daily for Jesus. We have no room to boast about our choice of Jesus or accepting Jesus because you don't really accept that. You receive it. You receive grace from God. And we give glory to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. So what should we say about these things? I know that you're probably all aware that they are, but to hear them again is not a bad thing. Instruction from the Lord, reproof. Because in the churches today, in a lot of places, they're not preaching the Bible no more. They're not teaching the Bible. They have a different kind of gospel with a different kind of Jesus. And... Personally, I feel that this is probably what the Lord called the great falling away in the people becoming apostate. Well, let's look at verse 31 to the end of the chapter so that we can get a hold of it. I hope that we can wrap our brain around what we've just talked about. And there's where Paul makes the summation of what he's just said and how secure our salvation is in Christ Jesus. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but deliver him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril or sword? 
Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why. That's why. Because he done these things before he formed you in the womb. Because he knew you. And before you came out of the womb, you have a purpose. And it's been established. So I pray that you'll be encouraged. That you'll understand what God's invested in you. And know that he doesn't make an investment like that where there isn't going to be a return. But as Mike comes up to sing his last song, I want you to ponder those things. And maybe this is old hat to you. I don't know. But this kind of this kind of scripture reading, this kind of things are very exciting to me because they are what keep me moving forward. And I pray that they'll be the same for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you've given everyone here ears to hear and eyes to see and to be able to apply these things, Lord, and understand that our our salvation is secure, Lord, and, and that we don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear uh, the coming days of trials and tribulations and that we can just stand firm and stand upon your promise, Lord. For that is the very essence of faith. It's believing in what is hoped for. Trusting in what we don't see. I ask, Lord, that you bless everyone. Get them home safely today. And glorify your name in their hearts and minds daily, Lord. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.